This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Mike Hogan made it back from Sweden, but uh, still can't make this week, uh, so we will continue to miss him. Uh, and I guess some of this conversation can be in his honor. Uh, we're going to start by taking a look at the Tony Awards, which happened on Sunday, and we're coming kind of award season fix until the Emmys and the Oscars roll back around. Uh, we want to Incredibles to a, little, to a little bit, and then swing back into the Emmys, we're going to share an interview that our colleague Laura Bradley did with Mandy Moore, the star of This Is Us, and talk a little bit about the category she'll be competing in and what the, the situation is for dramatic actresses on TV. But first, the Tonys. Uh, Richard, you and I were both tweeting through it, which is how we experience modern uh, award shows, especially when it's not the Oscars and we don't really have to work. I thought it was really charming, like as, as kind of as low key as the Tonys always are. They're pretty low rated compared to the Oscars. I thought they did a nice job. Yeah, and they were faced with a particularly tricky task this year because there just wasn't a lot that was splashy. I mean, sure, you had the Harry Potter play, but that's almost so prohibitively expensive and sold out that even though a lot of people are seeing it, no one's seeing it. But you didn't have a a Hamilton. You didn't have like a huge musical that's usually what, if anything, draws audiences in. So I think that instead of trying to zhuzh it up somehow and make it bigger and more appealing, they kind of turned inward and made it more of like a theater nerd show. You know, having Sarah Bareilles and Josh Groban host yeah, they're like famous beyond the theater, but lately that's kind of what they've been up to. And, you know, their whole opening song about not winning if you're nominated, like, it just all felt very insidery in a way that, like, certainly I as a theater kid in high school and college, like, I would have really liked that rather than a show that was trying to face outward and appeal to people who didn't normally care about theater. So I thought that was a good strategy. Yeah, even the way that they did the, like, uh, hashtag Tony Dreaming or whatever, where they had people submit their photos of themselves doing high school theater, um, it just felt very celebratory of kind of the the specific subset of people who make up Broadway. and But then also, you know, probably millions of people around the country who want to be just like them. And it's not, you know, Super Bowl-sized numbers, but it seems like they kind of accepted that the Tonys is never going to be that. And they just made it a fun show for the people who already are invested, which seems smart to me. Well, it's the kind of thing where, you know, it's something we talk about in our industry, like about like, you know, shifts in readership and all this stuff and trying to get more like, yes, the audiences are going to be smaller, but if they're niche and impassioned, like maybe that's worth more. And you saw it reflected in the advertisements, like during the broadcast, like, you know, live probably award shows are really the only time I see ads, but like they were very pointed. There was a Mamma Mia 2 uh, preview. There was a, uh, an ad for something, I, oh, like Las Vegas that was involved involving a lesbian wedding, because you've got to figure a lot of LGBT people are watching the Tonys, you know, so like, okay, yes, that didn't reach, you know, 32 million people, but like maybe the 10 or so million people it did reach, if it was even that, 
you know, they were more receptive to it. So I, I think that there probably is a wisdom in, a, in in kind of doubling down on the kind of theatery insideriness of it all. Yeah. I think about people like my mom who kind of annually watches the Tonys and figures out what she wants to buy tickets for for the next time she's coming to New York. That's the audience they're looking for. There's also so many people who are going to go to Broadway who aren't going to watch the Tonys who are going to show up in New York and be like, ah, there's tickets to Carousel. I'll see that. So it's like uh, the business model. I mean, the, Oz- the Oscars work in a similar way where like there's the people who watch the Oscars and then there's people who go see Avengers Infinity War and those aren't going to be the same audience and it, it doesn't – it's okay if it's not the same audience. Right. You know, and I used to work in theater in ticketing uh, in, in New York years ago and there is definitely a bump from shows that win. And so I think a show like The Band's Visit, which won pretty much everything nominated for, for I think, that will definitely see it. That's a, That's great news for that show. But at the same time, I feel like the person who's like, oh, I should go see that now was probably already going to see it at some point. You know, this has just yeah. now put some urgency on it. It was that kind of year. I could see probably in years past, like when, when you know, they performed Wicked in like 2005 or whatever it was, 2004, maybe. Um, maybe some, you know, not regular theater goer would be like, oh, that seems interesting. I want a ticket to that. But like this very much felt like a show that was highlighting things for people who were probably already a little bit in the know, but maybe needed that extra bump. Although I will say, I think it had the opposite effect for me on the Frozen musical, speaking of uh, Wicked, where it's not that, like, it was bad or the singing was bad. It just, like, it just looked so cheesy and like a mimic of the movie like unlike the spongebob number that they performed where it was this tap dancing squid with four legs it was kind of spectacular um so yeah the frozen musical did not come as cross as well for me yeah something about it seemed very tinny and i believe my tweet was this is some vegas shit because <laughs> it's <just laughs> not felt... lesbian wedding vegas shit no not like cool lesbian wedding uh, but like it felt really cheesy and old you know, like it just felt very big and brassy and sort of like not reading what theater is, what musical theater is doing right now. It's still a big hit. So what does it really matter? But like, I think, I, you know, I saw some people on Twitter grumbling about it. They were like, why is this even here? Like, it, yes, it's nominated, but like Disney does not need this. Like it doesn't need the promo. Couldn't we give this to a show that's like struggling? Um, and I kind of agreed. I mean, obviously it's convention to have every nominated show perform, but still. Uh, I mean, if, for me, I think like the stagecraft highlight, and this is not something that really anyone can or should be able to repeat, but it was when the Parkland kids showed up and sang Seasons of Love, which is a song that was written before they were born. Oh and my like God. the fact the fact that so you 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 didn't watch the Tony's Joanna, but you watched that clip, I assume. So I watched um some clips the next morning. I watched the opening number with Sarah and Josh and I watched um Seasons of Love. I, I just asked some people like what they thought I should watch. And um yeah, the Parkland number was so powerful. And I imagine even more powerful. I don't know how hyped or announced it was as the show uh went on. Like you know, they often do that. They're like, stay tuned. Cynthia Revo is going to blow your socks off after the commercial yeah. break. Um, so I don't know if they did the same for the Parkland kids, but if it was all sort of at all not expected, then I think it really would have hit me even harder. That sort of thing is counterbalanced with then like whatever it was that Bruce Springsteen was allowed to do on that stage. Do you know what I mean? Which feels like, which felt like a really, I, you know, much love to the boss, but like felt like a real wrong note in exactly what you're talking about. This sort of like clubby, this is, this one's for the theater kids sort of, uh, you know, show that they were putting on. You mean Uncle Bruce's Storytime Hour? Yeah, Uncle Bruce's Storytime Hour. What was that about? I went and took a shower at that point, and I came back. I was like, he's still on, huh? I think it was 13 minutes. 
I, I think that's how long it was. But yeah. also, did you guys know that like there are like rough and tumble towns in New Jersey? Because that was news to me. I was I was like shocked. I was like, wait, how are they living? They're getting coffee. I mean, it was what? just like it was like a window. Do some, into of, them, it. Do some of them work in steel or no? <laughs> I think no? they might. I don't know. Wow. Or on the docks. Bruce Springsteen's career has been so long. You'd think he would have been able to bring this up in the past. Um, so is there anything that we would like want the Oscars to take out? Like Oscars is the award show that we obviously love the most. Like is for me, it's just like the, the insularity of it and the clubbiness is something I feel like the Oscars could imitate instead of, you know, having a bunch of people crash a screening of a wrinkle in time. Um, I don't know. What, what, what did you think, Richard? I think that, yeah, that I think that's embracing the kind of cheese of it all, you know, and not, not, not cheese necessarily, but the sort of goofy, like they know who's watching. They know who's at home. Like, you know, just appeal to those people. Don't try to make it, like, hip where it doesn't need to be hip or make it referencing. You know, movies obviously have it a little bit easier because more people see movies and they're, you know, you don't have to go to New York to see movies, you know, etc. But it's still, like you said, a kind of insular group, ultimately. Uh, so I think just lean into that and have a little more fun within that, those parameters, you know, rather than trying to drag the rest of the world into it and being like, you have to care about this, you have to care about this, like, because they don't, yeah. and then they resent it. Or even making fun of yourself being like, oh, we're gonna get you guys to care about the reader, like, it's, right. that's never my favorite Oscar look either, like, care about the thing you care about, and people maybe will follow. Although, to be fair, which Hugh Jackman's The Reader, yes. I didn't see <laughs> I that. Know. That, actually, <laughs> that actually is a terrible example, because him doing the craft work, The Reader number is one of my favorite things. Has happened to I the was about in the to last say, decade. like, <laughs> even before you said that, like when Richard was talking about what the Oscars would be, I should be like, that's that's like my favorite Oscars, which is Hugh Jackman's Oscar. That uh, Dan Harmon, I think, won an Emmy Award for writing. I love that one because you know that also featured a lot, but not all night Anne Hathaway, and that just felt like the right amount of tryhard. If you have, I feel like Hugh Jackman and Anne Hathaway are good, like Josh Grobe and Sarah Bareilles counterparts for like yeah. what what you kind of want from the Oscars and bring uh, them back to host. And of course, Neil Patrick Harris has hosted both of these shows, like you know the Tonys, what three times? I can't remember how many times, and um, and the Oscars kind of disastrously once, but um. Yeah, I don't know. I still think there is a little bit of balance. Like, watching Sarah Brellis and, and Josh Groban's opening number, I was like, this is aggressively fine. I'm never going to go look it up on YouTube again. Um, but, like, I have rewatched Neil Patrick Harris's opening numbers from the Tonys or some of his, like, uh, interstitial numbers, like, with Hugh Jackman, or he did that great one with, like... Uh, Lori Benanti and uh, like four of them were about like Broadway actors who had gone to do TV and it's just like this really cute like they got all their TV shows got canceled so they're going back to Broadway it was really cute but so so I was missing a little bit of that but I guess YouTube rewatchability is not like the number one thing you should strive for when when putting a, a show together I I'm becoming convinced listening to you guys that the approach to this year's Tonys was the right one but in the moment I was just sort of like this is fine well, I mean, to be fair, like, we all missed last year's host, you know? We gotta get that guy back. Where is oh, he? Oh, no. <laughs> it was Kevin uh, Kevin Spacey. Spacey. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Um, but, you know, there's, and, and you, uh, you know, Katie, you mentioned, like, the photos of, of theater kids. Um, one of my favorite, I mean, my love for him is deeply unpopular, but I really like James Gordon. And James Gordon's opening Tony Award number had, like, a smaller version of himself, like, dreaming of being in the theater. So, like, I feel like I've felt that from them before, but with, like, a little bit more showmanship. But maybe since I, like, 
have lived in New York for far less time than you guys that I'm like the basic bitch middle of the country Tony Award watcher who doesn't have that like inside access to the theater, which is fine. Uh, Yes, you Bay Area rube. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So we want to talk briefly about this week's big new release, Incredibles 2, which is extremely Oscars adjacent. The original Incredibles won the uh, Best Animated Feature Oscar. There is plenty of reasons to think that Incredibles 2 would be in the competition there. I actually managed to see it early, which is an accomplishment for me these days. And uh, I thought it was fine. And I want to like it more. And maybe I'm coming to you guys to convince me to like it more because I uh, I feel like I want to embrace uh, Pixar doing things that are kind of, uh, you know, top tier for sure. But for me, it didn't it didn't hit heights the way I wanted it to. Yeah. So f- full disclosure, I haven't seen the whole thing. So don't doesn't the audience isn't the audience dying to hear what I have to say about this movie that I've only seen 30 minutes of. Well, but- also, also to be clear, you didn't walk out. You just were shown in advance. Yes. Uh, preview of 30 minutes. <laughs> yes, I didn't walk out in a huff over a Pixar film. But um, I also felt like. Like, whatever I watched, like, when it ended, I wasn't like, oh, my God, I can't wait to see the rest. But I was never, like, a massive Incredibles fan. I liked the original Incredibles. Maybe I was too old when I saw it. I wasn't, like, you know, super old, but I wasn't a kid when I saw it. Um, I thought it was fine. I like Brad. I like a lot of other things that Brad Bird has done more. So when when they're like, your favorite family's back, I was like, "Uh, I'm okay. I don't know. Um, (laughs) Give me the fish of Finding Nemo any day. Yeah, so I, I thought it was, yeah, just fine. There's a topical bit with a raccoon, uh, and given how the, how the, how the nation's ca- heart was captured by a raccoon climbing a building this week uh, in Minneapolis, uh, you know, the fact that there's a, a scrappy raccoon in this movie is kind of fun. Joanna, I think that be- the, the reason you didn't love the first one is that you've not embraced the principles of Anne Randian objectivism, which <laughs> <laughs> famously that film espouses. I appreciated that The Incredibles 2 did not go into that sort of like, you know, ethical egoism of the first movie. But, um, you know, again, I I, I agree with you, Joanna, that like, I'm not like that big on the first one. I'm not that big on Pixar movies, to be honest. And that's a personal bias. It does not reflect their quality at all. But, you know, I had fun at this. And I think that raccoon sequence in particular, I I was like laughing out loud in a way that I don't normally at movies. Yeah. When they've got Jack-Jack the baby who is developing his powers, and there's this really excellent physical comedy within that. And there's a lot of good physical comedy throughout. I mean, when you have people with powers who can do incredible things, they, you know, find ways to work the comedy in it. The humor aspect of it worked for me. It was kind of the like, not, not the lack of objectivism, but like the lack of a strong metaphor for family. Family, which I think is what really powered the first one. Um, it didn't. It didn't pull together for me the way that a lot of the best Pixar movies do. What do we think about this theory that the whole plot line about uh, Elastigirl, Hallie Hunter's character, going to work and becoming sort of the, the famous spokesperson while her husband stays home was some sort of Hillary Clinton homage? Do we buy that at all? <sighs> I, I mean, exactly. It feels super relevant, like, because when people are talking about working mothers and kind of uh, parental balance a lot lately, the movie kind of plays more with sexist stereotypes of men and women raising kids than it really falls into them. But I also didn't feel like it did a- enough with the the working mom storyline, even though seeing her, like, get on her motorcycle and get back into business is really satisfying, especially as a big fan of Holly Hunter, which I think we all are. I loved her scenes, I and I just, I, I kind of 
heard this sort of Hillary Clinton thing after the pet fact, and I was like, oh, does it have to be? <laughs> we really need our 2016 uh, metaphors, uh, election metaphors, either gone entirely or maybe not in our uh, in our animated films. I will say, that, uh, like, in a niche sort of observation, not that niche, but uh, I was really happy to hear Sarah Vowell's voice again, because I feel like, you know, when the original movie came out, she was like, you heard her all the time on NPR and, like, audiobooks and Daily Show and stuff like that, and she's kind of become less prolific, and so I was just like, oh, here's Sarah Vowell again. And I just wanted to follow Violet basically around the whole movie. Yeah, so. yeah Violet's definitely my favorite. Joanna, you're writing a story about the short that comes before Incredibles 2. Um, and I think it is fascinating to all of us in different ways. Um, can, can you tell us about Bao? Bao. Um, I've been trying not to talk about it too much because I think even talking about how kind of remarkable it is ruins the experience that I had when I saw it where I was like, what the fuck am I watching? <laughs> How is this a Pixar short? I, and when it was introduced to me, um, I saw it over the Pixar campus a couple weeks ago. And when it was introduced to me, the person introducing it was like, we have tried something kind of different. And like, I feel like the last time they tried something different was I Lava You or whatever that terrible, like, like Hawaiian <laughs> that volcano was that everyone hated. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no. Um, then I was like engrossed and horrified and then heartbroken and all of these things and i don't know it's it's tremendous the style is lovely and different and then also thematically and the i feel like the depths it's willing to go to it's like you know it's like the kind of the beginning of up <laughs> in a in a little short uh with dumplings so yeah that's how i would put it i liked it um i mean first i like anything that's an homage to the ancient greek myth of Cronus devouring his children so they don't <laughs> <overtake> <laughs> it, that, you know. most pixar movies are deep down right but you know something about about pixar movies uh, w- whether they're short form or long form Something that irks me sometimes is this kind of naked plea for that particular kind of emotion, like that sort of wistful, sad, sweet sort of combination that, like, they do really well, but at this point feels almost like prepackaged in a way. Um, so I kind of went into Bao and, and, you know, as I go into most Pixar things, a little bit like wary of being like manipulated like that. But by the end of that little short, I was like a teary mess. So it works. All of my skepticism, or at least my my guard is, is kind of eroded because they're really good at it. I don't think, yeah, and I think it's because it goes one step beyond teary wistfulness to like a darkness, <laughs> a Goya painting, you know what I mean? And you're like, I didn't know I was going to get a Goya painting when I saw this. So like, um, yeah, so even the most skeptical, I'm not going to be suckered in by this Pixar viewer might find themselves a little like, uh, banged up by that short, but in a good way. I don't know. I thought it was, I thought it was kind of cool. What did you think, Katie? As, as, as the, uh, as the only mom on this podcast. Oh yeah. Well, that's, that's the only thing that makes my opinions valid these days. No! That's the, uh... <laughs> Come on. As a mom. No. <laughs> yes. This is my dishwashing so bad. No, I definitely, I, I like the way that you're reading because when definitely when the, uh, the, as it gets to the darker points of it, I was like, what in God's name is Pixar trying to do? But also there's a reason that there are uh, many historical uh, depictions of people kind of attacking or devouring their children is because that's kind of a powerful impulse of like a creature who literally lived inside you and then is out in the world and driving you crazy. Um, so and then the dumpling is just really cute. He's it's such a cute, cute little dumpling head stuffed with turkey sometimes <laughs> or beef, maybe I don't know, maybe pork. It looked delicious. I was very hungry when I saw Incredibles 2, and that short did not help at all. So you're all. like, oh, I get it. I would do that, too. <sighs> I really yeah. wish the concession stand had dumplings. 
I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. So in a little bit, we're going to share the conversation that Laura Bradley had with Mandy Moore, who is the star of This Is Us. And I think according to a lot of uh, prognosticators, a pretty strong contender for an Emmy nomination for her role on the show. Um, but she's got some really fascinating competition. So we wanted to just take a look at the uh, the drama actress category. So there's an obvious heavy hitter here in that Elizabeth Moss is nominated again for The Handmaid's Tale. She won last year. The Handmaid's Tale won last year. I think it's still a cultural force compared to the way it was last year. Maybe not quite as much. Um, do we feel like this is still kind of her category to lose, even with all the, the talent in there? Uh, no, I think Elizabeth Moss is going to win. I mean, like, really? like, she's at the top of every Gold Derby thing. That show just still has its kind of relevancy, you know, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I just feel like the the TV Academy is still very high on that show. I feel like people are not talking about that show this season at all. I don't know if I've just like fallen out of the loop of where people used to talk about the Handmaid's Tale, but I feel like people aren't talking about season two. Not that like talking about necessarily translates to win, but like there are a few other things I guess to consider, which is Claire Foy. This is her last shot. And an Emmy for playing the Queen of the Crown. So there's that. Oh, yeah. that's. I keep forgetting that she's not coming back. I'm yeah. Ditto Carrie Russell for the Americans, though that is even more muted, you know, than um, than anything that I'm perceiving about Handmaid Season 2. So, uh, you know, those are a couple of considerations. Uh, we know that Amelia Clark is submitting in lead actress. I don't know, like, what Game of Thrones is going to do to the Emmys this year as opposed to, like, since they took a year off, if like the Emmys are like, hey, it was kind of fun giving other people awards. Let's do that again. And it also, is, it's hard for me to remember that Game of Thrones is eligible because it aired so long ago. It feels that like, way. It absolutely. was barely within this period of eligibility. And then it might depend on what happens in the next two episodes of Westworld if like Tandy Newton um, or Evan Rachel Wood, you know, sneaks in there. Um, I would, I would say Tandy. I think last year Tandy submitted in supporting, and I think this year she's submitting in lead. And so hmm. that's you know, uh, you know, Richard 
Patricia and I maybe, or maybe just me, have a bias since we host a Westworld podcast. But, um, you know, I'd, I'd look out for Tandy. Why not? I'm intrigued by the people who are shortlisting Sandra O, oh, uh, which is something I don't think anyone yes. might have done before Killing Eve premiered because it uh, it was such a runaway surprise success. But I think that could be really interesting because she's, uh, you know, she's got a strong television history. And like, I don't know what the, the track record of BBC America shows is with the Emmys. Like, obviously, like Sherlock's done all right, but I think that could Orphan be Black, t- Tatiana, well, yeah. oh, no, Tatiana won the Emmy, right? Not the Golden Globes? Yeah, she won an uh, Emmy. Yeah. So, yeah. So Tatiana winning sets a good precedent, though that took like, I think four seasons of Orphan Black for her to get that win. And of course she was playing like nine different parts in order to get yeah. it, but um, <laughs> pretty high level of difficulty. But I, I would actually, I mean, Sandra is so good, but if someone from that show is going to get it, I would say it's Jodie Comer, who's her co-star probably in supporting, um, though they are co-leads. Uh, she is just like, I mean, I, I don't know. I would give it to them both, but Jodie, I think, um, has this people haven't seen uh, uh, the US um, audience hadn't seen her work before even though she's quite prolific in the UK and she's just like um, Tatiana Maslany she's a, she's, she has a chameleonic quality that she uses in that show that's a little flashier maybe than what uh, Sandro is doing so it sounds like this lineup, uh, as maybe per usual for the Emmys, includes a lot more variety and challenges for the actresses than often the Oscars get to do. I mean, just looking at, you know, some of these shows I have seen, some of them I haven't, but there's just, there's so much that they all get to work with. It makes it exciting to kind of see them all stacked against each other. Yeah. And I think if anything with Sandra Oh, like helping her along is that like, there is that sort of nice narrative, like about how she was on the, her, the phone with her agent reading the script, and she was like, "Okay, so what's what's the part? Like, what, what do they want me to play?" And the agent was like, "It's Eve. They want you to be the lead." And then she just like assumed that that wasn't the case because that's sort of been a lot of her career, despite a lot of success on Grey's Anatomy. And so, I feel like there's a kind of like anointed quality to her role in that show and like the fact that she's the lead of it and that's it's been so critically acclaimed i don't know that that's enough to really you know get the emmy's attention like you said joanna it took tatiana maslany however many seasons to get noticed by the tv academy which can be famously slow to react you know and yes they gave elizabeth moss uh it's really hard for me not to call her elizabeth moths which she was called by someone on, a, on an award show a couple of years ago. <laughs> and I thought it was so funny. I forgot who called her that. Anyway, Elizabeth Moss. Um, yes, they gave it to her for the first season of Handmaids. But I feel like given how slow that cruise ship is to turn at the Emmys, like, I think they'll just give it to her again. But to uh, to go back to Mandy Moore for a second as we get ready to share the interview. I mean, this year, this season, she did have kind of the they had the the post Super Bowl episode with the the aforementioned crockpot Richard, uh, and she's got kind of the best Emmy clip you could ask for, where she like learns that her husband has died in the hospital unexpectedly, and she's really terrific in it. And I think that like if the you know the, this is us as a show that's on everyone's radar. If you're going and submitting your Emmy clip, like that's a that's a strong uh, ace to have up your sleeve. Yeah, you know, and with Sterling winning, like it's clear that the Television Academy is paying a lot of attention to this is us. I, uh, you know, I am not a regular This Is Us watcher. I love Mandy Moore on this show. And I've loved her for years. And we are huge, you know, in this house, we respect Mandy Moore. I think we've talked about this on the podcast before. And so, you know, I would, I mean, I certainly think she's going to get nominated. Uh, It would be really fun to see her win. And, you know, she's got, uh, I'm usually really skeptical about um, old age makeup. But, uh, you know, the it works actually kind of well on the show, like against all yeah, odds. Yeah, it, it does. It always does surprisingly well. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I love Mandy. I can't wait to hear what uh, she and Laura talk about. Well, that seems like a good segue to go hear what Mandy and Laura talked about. Let's listen to that interview. I'm here with Mandy Moore. Hi, Mandy. Thanks so much for being here today. Hello. Thanks for having me. 
So I'm so excited to talk a little bit about This Is Us and your career, which has been in so many places over the years. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, to say the least, yes. (laughs) So I think one of the most fascinating things about your evolution over the years is just that you've done so much music, acting, and then sometimes a mixture of the two. I'm wondering what it's like to sort of look at where you've been and to think about where you're still going now. I, I started in this business at 15 and I'm 34 now, so about to celebrate 20 years of being in this crazy industry. I I feel incredibly lucky because I think I started out in the business at a time where it wasn't completely, it wasn't entirely unheard of, but it wasn't typical to sort of make the crossover as a musician or as a pop star, I guess, as how I first started out into like the world of acting and being taken seriously and having some semblance of credibility and longevity and so in that regard I feel really really lucky I never I had aspirations to do everything I wanted to be Bette Midler I wanted to do Broadway and TV and movies and make records and go on tour and have a family and like just sort of try it all so I I definitely have a ton of gratitude that I'm still kicking today And where did you feel you were career-wise when you first read the script for This Is Us? And I'm just wondering, what did you connect with about Rebecca? What made her seem so appealing? I was at sort of this weird lull and low point, I think. I had done four pilot seasons that had not come to fruition. And so I I had a tremendous amount of self-doubt and I blamed myself. I was like, well, I've worked with all of these remarkable people on each of these respective projects. So I must be the ingredient that isn't working in all of these situations. <laughs> I need to like pack it up and go home and try my hand at something else. Um, so I was I was definitely like... Yeah, just in this this real low point of trying to reevaluate what I was doing and where I was going and if I even wanted to continue acting, I guess. And um, I had just signed with a new agent. And I remember collectively we all sort of had this major discussion of like, all right, so we're not going to throw our name in the hat for traditional pilot season moving forward. Let's concentrate on, you know, the other platforms that cast you around, whether it's like Amazon or Netflix or whatever. And then two and a half weeks later, I get this script for the untitled Dan Fogelman project at NBC. (laughs) And I was like, what? This was the exact kind of thing we just mentioned that, like, I wasn't going to get my heart set on because I just don't know if I could face that kind of rejection anymore. I was like, I love Dan. I knew Dan a little bit because he had written the movie Tangled, the animated Disney film that I had done. But I didn't know him well, and this was like five years before that I had worked with him and and had met him. But I read the script and, of course, completely fell in love with the project as a whole and the ending and the limitless possibilities that that ending sort of provided for for the show moving forward. And it's funny because on the page in that first pilot episode, like, Rebecca is not a huge part of the story you know she's eight months pregnant with triplets and you can tell that there's this beautiful marriage between her and jack and they really love each other and they're so excited about becoming parents and then the tragedy of losing a child in childbirth so 
I had no indication from that initial script where the show was going to go and ultimately who this matriarch really was. So I was excited and wanted to be a part of it regardless, but I just didn't know. So I, I was unaware until in the midst of shooting the pilot with Milo, it was like a 20-day shoot or something. And my work was the first two days of work. And Dan came down excitedly to set like he still does and was like gabbing our ear off about that I have this idea about like this is how the show's going to be and sort of started talking about how we're going to pick up an episode two and it will be several years down the road and the kids will sort of, you know, be, be children at that point. And I was like, Dan, no, no, stop, stop, stop. Like, I don't I don't want to know anymore because I can't have my heart broken again. <laughs> like, I can't have my heart set on the show moving forward. And then nobody ever gets to see the, you know, the show doesn't see the light of day. So, again, yeah, I was just completely unaware of of who this role would sort of what it would materialize to be. Yeah. But the potential was there. And you saw it was. It. Yeah. Yeah. And for those who are living under a rock and haven't seen the show, (laughs) Mandy plays Rebecca Pearson, mother of three, her twins, Kate and Kevin, and their adopted son, Randall. And one of the things that's really struck me as the show continues is that especially in season two, I feel like Rebecca, both as a woman, as a mother, is fleshed out in a way that I felt she hadn't quite gotten her due in season one. Some people are really mean to her sometimes. Really mean. They are. They were very mean, and it was upsetting because she didn't deserve it. And I I feel like season two really addressed that in a way that I hadn't seen, and I really appreciated that. And I'm wondering for you, especially just in the context of Time's Up and sort of women's stories being looked at in a different light and appreciated in a different light, Mm -hmm. I just found that really fascinating. And I'm wondering for you, do you feel as though the audience has a better sense of who Rebecca is now? And is that gratifying for you as the person playing her? It is gratifying. But I also think that that is the trick of doing a serialized show, you know, an episodic show. It's we have the good fortune of having time to sort of parse out this story over several seasons, hopefully. So I agree with you. I feel like Rebecca was unfairly criticized and judged in the first season, and she definitely made some unpopular choices. (laughs) And I would deviate from her in certain respects on some of the things that she chose to do. But also, I am not a mother. I don't know what that's like. I have a tremendous amount of sympathy for her. But I also believe it was unfair and odd to me that, like, I remember there's a certain point in the first season where... You know, this this story sort of unfolds and is told out of sync and out of order and out of time in a way. So you're flashing forward and flashing back and then you're in present day. And in this particular part of the story, my character is in her mid-40s. Her kids are almost 18. They're getting ready to be, you know, off to college and out of the house. And my character had a music career or loved to sing before she got married and, and became a mother. And this opportunity comes back around in her life to sort of, I don't know, fulfill that part of her creativity, like that part of an individual that she sort of has shuddered away for years. And because she wanted to leave and like go on tour for a week or something and leave her husband at home to take care of the kids, like so many women objected to it. And I was (laughs) I was bowled over by that, like here's a hot tip for you don't go on facebook (laughs) and read anything if you're ever on a television show or you make an appearance somewhere because it people are very opinionated and especially with a show like ours where we're incredibly lucky to have people feel so connected to this family 
But there were a lot of women who felt like this woman has it all. She has this loving, perfect husband, and she has these three kids. Like, that's her responsibility, and that's her obligation, and that should be enough for her. So I was really— That is surprising. I was so surprised in this day and age, right? Um, So that was odd. But I agree with you that I think— It's a testament to Dan Fogelman, our creator, and all of our incredible writers, a lot of whom are women. This is a very female-centric show and female-led show in many ways. And I feel like because of that and because Dan clearly loves women and has a lot of adulation and respect for women, that's reflected in the writing and how women are portrayed in our show. And that makes me all the more proud to be a part of it because – They're not one-dimensional. They're not the wallflower. They're not just the cardboard cutout of a wife or a girlfriend or sister or daughter. Like, these are people who are fallible and make mistakes and are human and flawed. And I think that's something to root for and celebrate. And it's also way more recognizable for us, you know? It is interesting. I mean, it's at the end of the day, it's a show about a very human family, you know, both very caring but very fallible. And Mm -hmm. it is interesting, especially with the female characters they all bring. Each of them has a very unique perspective Mm -hmm. and approach to everything, which is always so fun to watch. Yeah. Can you think of any project that you've been a part of that has become a cultural phenomenon to the degree that this has? I don't think any of us have. Right. I was sitting there going back in my head and I'm like, I mean, I think like as somebody who was of a certain age when A Walk to Remember came out, like that was a very big deal. But there wasn't social media back then. It wouldn't have been the same kind of thing. It wasn't the same kind of fervor that this show definitely brings. It's crazy. It's so humbling for all of us, too, because like that you were alluding to it's like it doesn't always line up like you have plenty of jobs that you're proud of you're proud of the work or you're proud of whatever it ends up being or the way it's received in the world but so much is out of your control so being able to be a proud of the work that we're lucky enough to get to do but then also for that to sort of like the way we feel about the project is matched by the way people feel about the project is such a lucky random crazy like ingredient i don't know what it is so it's not lost on any of us like we recognize how special the moment is and how special it is to be a part of something like this and you just relish it like you go to work every day i drive through the gates of paramount like every day that i'm at work and i'm like thank you thank you universe thank you whomever like this is everything you want as a person you know to be fulfilled to that degree by the work that you get to do definitely And just thinking back to last year, I remember Milo Ventimiglia, who plays Jack, your now late husband, Mm -hmm. may he rest in peace, was a pretty staunch advocate for the fact that he wanted you to be nominated for an Emmy for your work right alongside Mm -hmm. him. I remember him being very vocal about that. And I'm wondering, as we sort of head into Emmy season this year, how what is your perspective on that? How are you looking at things? Oh, my God. Even to, like, be in the conversation (laughs) at all is the most mind-boggling thing. Like, I still always feel like the underdog that nobody, (laughs) like, I mean, I I feel so lucky to have the groundswell of support, like, because of this show that people, the people have given all of us, like, Mm -hmm. the entire cast. Um, But Milo's the sweetest, and I agree that, you know, the work we do is what it is because we get to do it together. And I feel incredibly fortunate that he's my partner in this because he's so wonderful and we're always on the same page. And that's very kind of him to say. But 
again, all of that stuff is out of your control. The fact that, like, as an actor, all you want is to be working. And we mm-hmm. are. I remember somebody asked me earlier today, like, when was the first moment that you recognized, like, this show is going to be a success? I was like, when we got picked up. Like, <laughs> that was all I wanted. I just wanted the chance, like, even just to make, like, 10 episodes or 13 episodes or something like that's all you you're you're craving like I just I want it's crazy to have a job where like you have to wait for someone to like give you the chance to do your job to do what you love to do so anything beyond like just getting to work being a working actor is truly the cherry on the sundae and anyone that tells you otherwise is lying like (laughs) all that stuff is cool but it's so out of your control like if you just have the opportunity to do the work like that's that's everything that makes sense yeah and the fact that like someone today was like so you're starting season three soon i'm like season three my head (laughs) is exploding and would have exploded if someone had told me that like two years ago don't worry you're gonna be on a tv show and you'll be rolling into at least three seasons of it like that's insane i have to admit though as somebody who does not cry easily even with this show watching your monologue work this past season i'm rooting for you oh thanks lady that's sweet of you you don't cry easily i don't know <gasps> interesting and you like the show i do it's a very strange combination maybe it's just a defined thing where i like to watch and be like yes i'm still not crying still i not made crying. it through i made it <laughs> it's like a badge of honor it is every time i get through it i'm like i've done my job oh, i love it except you get me though Aww. <laughs> Thanks. I'm sorry. No, on on a completely different note, I was recently rewatching Grey's Anatomy for reasons that do not matter. And I was reminded that you (laughs) played such a lovable character who ended up having this really intense and heartbreaking multi-episode arc in, I think, season seven. Mm -hmm. And it just reminded me of this wide range of characters and projects you've taken on. Like I've mentioned Walk to Remember, you were entangled, you were unsaved, this is us. Just You've really run the gamut. I'm wondering, you touched on this. I had been wondering if that was something that you were kind of consciously working to try to do is just get a taste of a little bit of everything over the years with your roles. I wanted to. I mean, it was somewhat strategic. Yeah. Like I didn't want to just sort of be pigeonholed, even though I kind of was, as we all are. I understand that's the name of the game. But yeah, I tried to make a conscious, you know, decisions to, to deviate from what was sort of expected of me. What did you feel was expected of you? I mean thinking back to my contemporaries at the time that I started music, like everybody sort of went off and did some sort of version of a film where they kind of played an extension of themselves. And I didn't want to do that. I also probably didn't even know who I was at that point. So that helped. (laughs) You were young when you got started. I was young. I was 15. Or to sort of like play just a musician always and and always have a combination of both. And although I've definitely had my fair share of that uh, throughout my career of like singing in a movie or doing an animated film where I get to sing or something, I've tried to at least like make the distinction between the two because they are pretty, pretty different. What kind of roles do you find that you've gravitated toward over the years? And has that changed as you've gone on? I think I had this real lull in my life personally and and professionally right around the time that I found This Is Us. It was like a couple, three or four years of just like, just couldn't get the machine going again. Mm -hmm. Um, And at that point, I was like, I had been married. I was in the midst of a divorce. And I think I was trying to like figure out who I was. And I had grown so much through that experience. And I felt like I had a lot more to bring to the table as as a human being. And that's why it was just perfectly timed and coincided with with This Is Us. I would not have been ready for an opportunity like that to play a wife and a mother until I was. 
Right. I mean, um, and sense. that was completely new territory for me. So up until that point, it was like, oh, I can maybe play like a newlywed or maybe I can play... you know, the girl who's sort of trying to figure out her life because that mirrored what I was going through. But I, I, I wanted more of a challenge than would be presented to me. I was never really thought of in line with like what I was craving at, at the time in life. Like I remember going in for things and it was like, you're not dark enough to play the prostitute or you're not, <laughs> you know, it's like right. people just sort of saw me through one lens. And again, I can understand that, but I love that. Just with the benefit of time and patience and now having the opportunity to like be a part of a show where I do play this 22-year-old to like 68-year-old and that kind of has opened the door, hopefully opened people's eyes like, okay, she can do more than maybe what I gave her credit for. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hopefully. I hope. I hope. I hope there's more. Yeah. Not saying like I won't get in there. I'll, I'll do the work and audition and do whatever I can. But I hope that at least people don't just see me as sort of the young you know, rom-com sort of girl anymore. Well, the wig and the glasses ought to really help. <laughs> Just show them all the clips of me as, as older Rebecca. See, she can do it. Look yes, at this. look at her. So other than This Is Us, have you found that any of the roles you've done have been particularly formative or kind of pivotal for you as you've gone along? I mean, starting probably with A Walk to Remember and then maybe with the film Saved because mm-hmm. I feel like that was the first time that I sort of subverted like direction that I don't think people were expecting like oh you're playing against type and in this sort of like crass right. indie movie um, and then after that I don't know I mean maybe a little bit I played myself on Entourage like I've always tried to sort of like jump around and do different things but I don't I don't know. And another thing I was wondering is just as somebody who, like you said, you've been in this industry for a fair amount of time, coming Mm -hmm. up on 20 years. Yeah. Across these different sectors, music, film, television, I'm wondering, what's it been like to see women being empowered this way with Time's Up and with Me Too just throughout Hollywood? Has that been encouraging? Just I'm wondering for you. It's an incredible example that's being set for not only women that are working now across the country and a variety of fields, but I think it just sets the template for the new normal moving forward for any young woman who's up and coming in any industry. And I, for one, like applaud it and support it and stand up for it. And it just like the sense of camaraderie that I think women in general are feeling these days, like out in the world is it's contagious. It's infectious. And I, I, I wish that we felt more, I wish it didn't take this long to get to this point, you know? It's been really interesting, especially I think some of the most fascinating stories to me are stories about women whose work had already it was being appreciated and they were already being treated well, but they're even so feeling empowered just to ask for things that they wouldn't necessarily have asked. I'm wondering, do you feel that at all? Like, Do you feel personally empowered going forward into new projects to ask for things that you might not have before? Absolutely. I feel empowered to want to make my voice heard. And I remember even just like the little things of. A lot of our cast members want to direct mm-hmm. on the show, and that's just sort of the, some of them have directed before. And I remember thinking, like, I want to, I want to do that too. Like, I don't know if it's something that I'll necessarily want to make a career of, but like, they're all trying. Like, I want to try too. <laughs> just those things that, like, I again, like, I don't know if it's a product of this movement now, or if it's a combination of that combined with like. Just having done this for a minute and and really understanding like all sides of the business to a degree that I hadn't necessarily before the show. Um, but it all kind of is lining up for, for everybody where you're like, 
yeah, it's our it's our moment now, and we're seizing on it, and there's no going back from here. Right, and that feels really empowering. It is. It's encouraging. It's to see. so encouraging. And so as you look forward to the future and what you'll do upcoming, just I'm wondering, what are you looking forward to? Do you have any goals in mind or are you just kind of flying by the seat of my pants? (laughs) Totally winging it, Laura. I want to do a musical. A musical? I want to do a musical on Broadway here. I'd love to do a musical movie. I want to start producing things. I want to start finding things to like option and figure out if there are TV shows or movies or documentaries. And I think that's a product too of like this movement of going like, okay, I understand now that like I can't wait for the world to catch up to me and to like bring things to me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make those moments for myself. And that feels good. I've never sort of been in that position where I felt like I deserved that. And I'm excited about that next chapter. Well, I'm just crossing my fingers for a Mandy Moore directed This Is Us then. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we may be we may be waiting until like season five or six. But I want to do it. (laughs) I I feel like I feel like the time is is fast approaching. Maybe next season for all of us, you'll just see a bunch of like of cast member directed episodes. That would be lovely. But I feel like we all know each other really well. We know these characters. We know these stories. Like who better to take the helm than one of us? It would be interesting, too, just to see how it sort of shifts the lens on the ensemble and just the context of everything it would just be fascinating it would be fascinating i wonder if you like have somebody step in and direct yourself because i don't think i'd be very good at that I'd be like <laughs> i need one more no no you know what I'm, I, I messed up again can i have one more take for th- i feel like, <laughs> like i would talking very much, to no one <laughs> i would very much be that person of just giving myself 20 takes exactly <laughs> So I feel like I would be remiss if I let this conversation go without at least one slow cooker joke. Oh, God. <laughs> Were you a slow cooker owner? Did you have one? I am a slow cooker owner. <laughs> and we all have been simultaneously like and subsequently gifted. Slow I was cookers. wondering. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to ask you is just do you have like a pile of slow cookers at your door? I now? definitely have more than one. You can make multiple dips for parties. I can. I can make like like a chili in one and then make some sort of brisket situation. I mean, yeah, the, the possibilities are endless. In your hypothetical, you directed This Is Us. You can bring a bunch of slow cookers to set <laughs> and just you can all have a feast. <sighs> Maybe at some point she'll be over it. One day. Thank you so much again for your time. Thank you for having me. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thanks as always for listening. Find us on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Tell your friends. Uh, you can find us all at VanityFair.com. We're all on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich. Richard. Rylaws. And Joanna. Jarethis. This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth. And this week's award for the best description of the Trump Summit with Kim Jong-un in Singapore goes to Richard Lawson. This is some Vegas shit. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.